And we're going to begin a series uh, in God's Word from the book of Romans, and I wanted to let you know uh, why we're going to do that. You know, I had been preaching through uh, the book of Ezekiel, and we're going to suspend that for a time. And uh, let me tell you why. We are, of course, uh, going through some transitions as a church family. No need to recount them all uh, at this time. But, of course, any time you go through uh, transitions, the question of your uh, identity as a church uh, is always on everybody's mind. Who are we as a congregation? Now, uh, in the history of this church, uh, the solid answer to that question is that we have been a people of the Word of God. That's who we are. We may be other things, but above all else, we are a people of the Word of God. And I want to read to you a quote from Martin Luther about the book of Romans. He says that it appears, sort of an understatement, it appears that Paul wanted to comprise briefly in this one letter the whole Christian and evangelical doctrine. It appears that Paul briefly in this one letter wanted to comprise the whole Christian and evangelical doctrine. So where can we go in the Scripture? What book of the Scripture can we find that will summarize all of the Scripture's teaching and help us to answer the question and to rally around uh, the answer to the question, who are we? If the answer is we are to be the people of the Word of God, we may go to the book of Romans, which comprises briefly the teachings of all of the Scripture and unite ourselves around that as we solidify our identity in that way. I'll go on to read from Luther. In this epistle, we find most richly the things that a Christian ought to know, namely, everything. What is law, gospel, sin, punishment, grace, faith, righteousness, Christ, God, good works, love, hope, the cross, and also how we ought to conduct ourselves toward everyone, whether righteous or sinner, strong or weak, friend or foe. That's everything. Everything the Word of God says, summed up right here in this book. And I don't think that's a, an overstatement by Paul. I think it's true. And that's why uh, we've chosen to uh, preach through this book. Is our desire, it's my desire that our church would continue to be founded and identified as a people of the Word of God. And so we are united in that way. We're not united necessarily on having a common history, although some of us do. We're not united all necessarily on having read the latest theological books, although some of you are doing that. All of that may be good and fine, but we have a common confession. And that is that we are here united to be a people around the, or we are here united as a people around the Word of God. And the book of Romans will help us to uh, unite in that. If you're a young Christian, the book of Romans will introduce you to all of the basic teachings of the Christian faith. If you've been a Christian for a, a long time in your life, the book of Romans will uh, very clearly challenge you as an old friend every time you revisit it. I'm sure you know uh, there will be new uh, riches found there. If you are new to the Reformed faith, Look, our Reformed confessions are patterned in some cases after the book of Romans. If you've always wondered or wanted 
to grow in your understanding of what we mean when we say Reformed. This is a good book through which to do it. And so God leads us in this series, and my prayer is that we will be led uh, to unity around the Word of God and in grace and true faith in Christ Jesus. To the book of Romans then, if you are using your uh, Bibles before you in the benches, it's found on page 1746. Romans chapter 1, the first uh, seven verses this morning. We'll uh, see how far we can progress. Romans chapter 1, 1746 of the Bibles and the benches before you. This is God's uh, holy word. And we do uh, well to pay attention to it. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David and through who the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through Him and for His name's sake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. So far, the reading of God's holy word. Congregation and friends of the Lord Jesus Christ, you have it laid out right there before you. Paul, the apostle, defines the gospel. You have it laid out there right before you. Paul defines the gospel. And so I ask you, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? Now, I want to show you from the first seven verses of Romans chapter 1 this morning that the gospel to the Apostle Paul is something that happened. The gospel is something that happened. In order to understand what that happening is, we have to know a little bit of background. Of course, when God created us as the human race, He created us good, we had no sin in us, but it was true, wasn't it, that we were able to sin in the Garden of Eden. And had Adam and Eve obeyed, you've heard this a thousand times, had Adam and Eve obeyed, they would have been confirmed in righteousness and then glorified, risen or glorified, exalted to a state where they were no longer able to sin. And they would have enjoyed even greater blessings than they had experienced already in the Garden of Eden. But what happened? Not only were they in the Garden and unglorified yet, but then what? They sinned. They rebelled against their Creator. As the Catechism says, they robbed themselves and all of their descendants, that's all of us, from the benefits of the glorification that otherwise would have been theirs. Now to Paul... The gospel is something that happened. 
in the world that was trapped in its unglorified state. And not only was it unglorified, but it was now tainted by sin and death. The Gospel is something that happened in that world. What is that Gospel? That Gospel, according to Paul, is that Christ, who is God from all of eternity, becomes also a true man, so now He's the God-man, and He enters the world while it is trapped in its old, unglorified, sin-tainted state. He obeys God's will perfectly in His life for His people, and then He dies for their sins on the cross, and then He is raised from the dead, and in His resurrection, He releases the creation from its bondage, not only to sin, but its bondage to this unglorified state. By His life and death, He has guaranteed that the, the, that the world and His people will be recreated. But by His resurrection, He has become Himself the firstfruits of the glorification. Not only has He taken sin away, you see, but in His resurrection... He is the one who brings in the glorification. The thing which Adam and Eve did not achieve. And Jesus is the one through whom the Spirit begins and will uh, at a later time fully recreate us and the world. So to Paul, the Gospel is something that happened. The Gospel is that Christ came and did this. Set apart, Paul says in verse 1, for the gospel of God. Verse 2, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture. Think about that word, the gospel, for a minute. The gospel is something that happened. In the Old Testament, uh, the gospel is also something that happened. Uh, oftentimes when uh, we see that word used, or the word that we understand Paul to have in mind, when he uses the word gospel, the word gospel used in the Old Testament is referring to a future coming, an announcement of the future coming of God in judgment and salvation. It's the good news of the breaking in to this fallen, unglorified world of the salvation of God. And of course, in the Old Testament, they're always looking forward to that. Psalm 40, verses 9 and 10. I have gospeled, or I have proclaimed glad tidings. I have announced that it is going to happen of righteousness in the great congregation. I will not restrain my lips, O Lord, you know. I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and of your salvation. It is going to happen that your loving kindness and your truth will go forward. That is what I am gospeling, says the psalmist in the congregation. In other words, I am announcing that something is going to happen in the future that is the great salvation of God. The gospel is something that happened or was going to happen from the perspective of the Old Testament saints. In Paul's day, by the time of the New Testament, even the unbelieving world, the pagans, also used that word gospel that Paul used. You know that many of the Romans believed that the emperor of the Roman Empire was divine, that he was like God. And so at the major events in an emperor's life, for example, when somebody was born who was an heir to the throne, 
or when an emperor was coming of age, or when an emperor actually went and took his throne, there were public announcements made about that. And those were called Gospels. They're saying, look, these events are happening. And so when Paul says, or is telling us about the Gospel, it's something that is happening. This event that Christ has come into the world and has released it from its bondage. To Paul, the Gospel is something that happened. The Gospel is an event. The Gospel to Paul is the beginning stage, the beginning stage, the inauguration, the beginning of the long-promised time of salvation. The Old Testament prophet said it's going to happen in the future, and Paul says the beginning stages of it have happened right now in my lifetime while I am writing to you. That's what Paul's saying. The Gospel is something that happened. Now let's be more specific about what happened. Verse 2, The Gospel He promised beforehand through His prophets in the Scriptures regarding His Son, who as to His human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the Spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. Now I've got to tell you up front that our translation is very bad here. Uh, so it might be a little confusing. I'll try to make as clear as possible uh, from the translation that's before us so what I'm saying. But to keep that in mind and don't get discouraged if you get a little confused. But the easy way to understand what Paul is teaching in uh, verses 3 and 4 here is to think of the life of Jesus Christ in basically three parts. The first part is obvious to all of us. Jesus Christ is the eternal God, right? The second person of the Trinity. He always was, He always is, and always will be. You see that uh, set apart uh, by Paul right there at the beginning regarding uh, the Son of God, Jesus Christ our Lord. Let me say this, Romans 9.5, Paul says uh, about Christ, He is God over all who is forever praised. So whatever we say next, I want you to understand that Christ is eternal God. He always has been God and that never changes. But especially what Paul, lay, Paul lays out in these verses is that Jesus went through two successive stages in His life as, a, as the God-man. So Jesus has been eternal God, but Jesus Christ, becoming man, went through two successive stages in his life. And the first is what is translated in verse 3, or the end of verse 3, as according to his human nature. It should read, according to the flesh. The first stage in Jesus' life was according to the flesh. And the first thing, of course, that that means is he did become a man. He was born of the line of David, so he was a true human, just like uh, you and me. But you see, the word flesh, in Paul's writings, and we'll see this developed more and more in the book of Romans, and you'll find it in other places, does not only refer to the fact that he was human, or as the translator says here, that he had a human nature. Of course, that's true. But it refers to the fact that Jesus came into the world and lived... 
as a man who was unglorified, who was corruptible, who was weak, who was able to be dishonored. Let me explain that to you a little bit more. Remember we said that Adam in the Garden of Eden was good, but was he glorified? No, he was not yet glorified. He was not yet confirmed in righteousness. And the world, after sin, had been trapped in that state of unglorification. And what Paul says, uh, Jesus came according to the flesh. Not only did he become a man, but it's important to understand that he entered the world and lived in the world at a time when it was unglorified. It was weak and frail. Now, of course, it also had sin, which tainted it. But even apart from sin, the world had not yet been glorified. It was off track. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul explains this a little bit more. He said, A body is sown in dishonor, but it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, but it's raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There's a natural body, then there's a spiritual body. Meaning this, that if you're a human being, there are two modes of existence for you. One is the unglorified state. And even Adam in the Garden of Eden before he sinned lived like that. It was weak or natural. It was unglorified. He was able to be corrupted, wasn't he? He had not yet sinned, but he was able to sin. Things could happen to him. It was possible if he sinned that he could die. And this is the world, and this is the existence that Christ lived when he entered the world. But then, something happened in verse 4. Through the Spirit of holiness, he was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. You see, he came as the God-man according to the flesh, that is, in the unglorified state. But when he was resurrected from the dead, he existed in a different way than he did before he rose from the dead. That is, he became incorruptible, he became glorified, he became the Son of God in power. Now, don't get confused by that term. Jesus has always been the eternal Son of God. But Jesus became, at His resurrection, the title here, the Son of God in power. And the Son of God in power means that He was the one through whom all of the creation, by the power of the Spirit, would now be recreated and restored. Being resurrected from the dead defined Jesus as the Son of God in power. Let me read to you something Jesus said from Mark chapter 9, verse 1. He said, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come in power. After it has come in power. Now some people get all confused with this and so they think that the people standing there at the time We're going to see by the end of their life the final coming of the kingdom of God. We know that's silly because we're waiting for that, which is still future to us at the judgment. But what is he speaking of here when he says the kingdom of God is going to come in power? Well, he's talking about 
the breaking through of the glorification when He rises from the dead. Luke chapter 20, he's debating with some people about what the resurrection will look like. And he says, you guys don't understand. Let me tell you about the people who are risen from the dead or those who are in eternal life. They cannot die anymore because they are like the angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. Sons of God being sons of the resurrection. And what that means is this, that in the eternal state, that is after the new heavens and the new earth are established and we have all of our inheritance in God through Christ, we will not die anymore. Why? Because we will have the title, Sons of God, with a small s, being sons of the resurrection. Meaning that we will be glorified. We will not only have the sins taken, having, uh, have the sins taken away from us, but we will be in a position where our bodies will be glorified, and not only that, our souls will be glorified. It's not like we're restored and then we'll be able to sin again and fall. No, in the glorification, we will be confirmed in this holiness. Confirmed in these blessings so that they will never be lost. Romans 8.19, Paul says it like this, the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. What does it mean to be a son of God? It doesn't just mean to Paul that you've been saved. In that sense, we're all children of God, right? Those who have faith in Christ. But to be a son of God means to what? Be glorified. And the creation is waiting anxiously today for those of us who are the children of God saved by His grace to take on the title sons of God. And Paul is saying about Christ that He lived according to the flesh, the unglorified state already. But when He rose from the dead, He exists already as glorified. And He is bringing in this glorification to the universe and to all of you who have faith in Christ. He is the first fruits of the resurrection. He is the first one who has gone before and is glorified and He is the guarantee that you will be glorified. You see, Christ taking on flesh, coming into the world, existing according to the flesh, unglorified, then being raised from the dead in the glorification, that is the Gospel. It's something that happened in history. Jesus came and did that. And He broke through the bondage of the old creation. To Paul, the Gospel is that which happened. That which Jesus did to live and die for His people and to glorify, to secure and begin the glorification of the universe. It's an event that was promised in the Old Testament and fulfilled in Paul's time and beginning to be fulfilled, we should say, in Paul's time. Now let's say a few things about the Apostle Paul himself. First of all, if you were going to receive a letter from the Apostle Paul... Uh, would not be like receiving a letter just from any other Christian or any other friend. Uh, And that's certainly true of this letter that he wrote to the Roman church. Uh, You can see this right away from the way he starts the letter. Look at verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. And then verse 7 finishes that 
prescription to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Paul, the servant of Christ Jesus, called to the apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Well, let me let you know, first of all, that, that we're pretty sure, in fact, we're certain from other passages in the Scripture, that Paul had not, and you'll see this referenced at times, uh, Paul did not know the Roman church personally. Uh, likely, the gospel went to the Roman church not through Paul, well, it wasn't clearly through Paul's preaching. It was likely, likely through the witness of Jews who had believed in Christ and had traveled to Rome and who, uh, through commerce or for whatever uh, other means, made their uh, living there, and then the word spread and the church was planted. The point is, Paul didn't know them. Paul was a stranger to these people in Rome. And if you were writing a letter uh, in, uh, in Greek in these times, there was a very standard way that you would address uh, the strangers you were writing to. If you were writing to a stranger you would say this. Paul would have written it like this to use the customary form. And virtually all of the letters, not just Christian letters, but other letters that we have at the time where somebody is writing to a stranger, they address them exactly the same way. They just give their name, Paul, and the person they're writing to, say, to the Roman church, and then they use the word greetings. So if he was writing to a stranger, which the Roman church was a stranger then, normally he would have said, Paul, to the Roman church, greetings. Now we see from the time that if there were, uh, if you were writing not to a stranger, but to someone more personal, someone with whom you had some intimacy, you might add a few adjectives when you described uh, the person you were writing to. So it might sound like this, Paul, to you, my beloved Roman church, Greetings. It's a similar form, but a few adjectives are added. You are my beloved Roman church. Greetings. So you can sense that Paul, in addressing uh, this church directly, calling it you in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, he has this personal attachment to them. But I want you to notice something else. Paul adds titles to his name, doesn't he, in verse 1. He calls himself a servant of Christ, called to be an apostle, and describes himself further, set apart for the gospel of God. Now the only time in the ancient Greek letters that we see the person who is writing a letter give themselves titles is in official government letters. Those who have an office, those who have authority, are the only ones that use this form of greeting. They're the ones that say, I, the emperor, write to you. I, the emperor, this and that, write to you. I, this official, am writing to you. This is my office. This is my position. And so if you were reading this letter as the Roman church coming from this stranger, you would immediately recognize that this was no ordinary stranger. He didn't just say Paul to the Roman church greetings. But he said, Paul to the church that I love, someone who cared personally for them, not only that, but Paul, who views himself as having some official authority. I am a servant of Christ, a slave of Christ, called to be an apostle. The sense you get in reading this letter, the sense that the original readers uh, had, was that this letter carried a solemn and authoritative mandate for them. 
This came to them as a very important letter from a dignitary, from an official, and it required their attention and their obedience. He does something uh, remarkable in this prescription. Again, if you were familiar with uh, ancient Greek letters of the time, he goes through a long explanation of the theology of what he's going to write in the book, doesn't he? Right in the prescription, between verse 1 and verse 7 as we have it, he explains the content of the Gospel. Now that was not common in ancient Greek letter writing. And that adds to this air of authority and a mandate that you must listen. And that is especially because Paul calls himself an apostle. An apostle. Now you need to think about that for a minute. What does an apostle mean? Well, in the Scripture, an apostle can mean, it means someone who is sent, literally. But it can just mean anybody who's a messenger. I could send out a messenger and that person carries the message and so they're an apostle. But you know that also in the Scripture, the, apostle, uh, the word apostle can have a specific meaning, referring to an official office kind of like how we speak of, say, the office of the minister of the Word today, or the office of elder, or the office of deacon. It's not just that uh, those people do certain tasks, it's that there is an, an office, an authoritative office established by God, and that's how this uh, Paul is using the word apostle here. He is one of those apostles. That is an office that they had. Matthew chapter 10, verse 2, the names of the twelve apostles are these. There was a group of apostles. They were officers that were in the uh, time of Christ and in the early church as it's recorded uh, in the Scripture. And in order to be an apostle and carry out the duties, you had to have certain qualifications. We know this from when they were trying to replace Judas who was one of the twelve apostles, but of course he apostatized, right? He rejected Christ. Uh, having rejected him, they needed to replace him. You say, therefore it's necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day he was ascended, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. In other words, one of the qualifications to have this office of apostle was what? that you were with Jesus, actually. That you had gone around with Him, that you had seen Him with your own eyes, and that you had witnessed His resurrection from the dead so that you could declare that. <clears throat> now, Paul's an interesting case, calling himself an apostle, because he doesn't exactly meet all of those qualifications in the same way. He defends his qualification as an apostle in different ways in different books. He says, look, I did see the resurrected Lord. Where did he see him? We remember when Jesus appeared to him, right, to save him. Am I not an apostle, Paul says? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? He said, I did see the resurrected uh, Lord, and I'm an apostle because also Christ himself called me. I'm not sent from man nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. He was thinking about the time when... Uh, Jesus told him, Get up, stand on your feet. I've appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I am sending you to the Gentiles. Christ sent me. I saw the resurrected Lord. And look at all that I've done, Paul says. The things that mark an apostle, signs, wonders, and miracles were done among you by me with great perseverance. 
So the signs and wonders and miracles which are qualifications of being an apostle of Christ, I have done, therefore I am an apostle, I have this official office. Why am I making a big deal out of this? Briefly, it's because Paul wants to impress upon those who are hearing him in the Roman church, and by extension, us who are sitting here today, that God has appointed him to that official office of apostle that through his proclamation of the gospel that happened, the people to whom he is preaching, God is recreating through Christ. We'll have to explain more of this next week. But Paul, when he reads the Old Testament, sees himself as part of the prophecy that Christ would come and accomplish redemption and that Christ would go and be preached to the Gentiles and that Gentiles would believe this gospel and then through that faith in Christ become part of this recreation. And Paul says, listen, before I was even born, I was called or appointed by God to this task and in time He called me to be the apostle to come to you And when I declare to you that the gospel has happened, what's happening to you is that the power of God to recreate the universe, to deliver it from its bondage to the unglorified state, to deliver it from its sin and death, that power is coming upon you as you hear me proclaiming this message. And what I am telling you this morning is that as you hear this apostolic message preached, that Christ came, lived a perfect life, that He died, that He rose from the dead and broke the power of the unglorified state and is ushering in the whole creation to new kinds of glory. As you hear that message and as you put your faith in Christ, that recreation is happening right here. That apostolic declaration is telling you this morning that in spite of all of your struggles with sin, that in spite of all of your frailties in life, your struggles with family, your struggles in the workplace, your, your inability to figure out how you ought to act in situations, your, uh, your body aging and suffering, the loss of the ones whom you love, the struggles at home, in church, in work, whatever, all of that, let me declare to you this morning, is being recreated by God through Christ. And you who have faith in Him, that power has broken through and is affecting you. Listen, as certainly as the Romans who were receiving this letter were receiving the blessings. Look, Paul said it like this. whether it was I or other apostles, we preached and you believed. That's 1 Corinthians 15.11. I preached and you believed. Listen, says Paul, what's happening to you as you're hearing my declaration is that Christ has reached you by His grace. As certainly as you hear this apostolic proclamation this morning, that the gospel happened, it is happening in your life. 
It was promised, it was fulfilled by Christ, and it's happening in your life. He is recreating you. So get your mind off of the things below and set them on things above. You are being recreated. The fact that you will share in the new creation is secured because Christ already lived and died and rose in your place. What does your future look like? I'll tell you what it looks like. It looks like glorification because Christ died for your sins, He gave you His righteousness, and He rose. That's your future. That's why Paul says at the end of verse 7, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the fact of the matter is that not everybody who is in this world has the apostolic proclamation made to them. Now think about yourself for a minute. Get outside of yourself. How come you're here this morning? Why? Grace. God has brought you here. He's brought you into contact with the apostolic preaching and He's telling you, you're being recreated. Don't get bogged down and depressed and discouraged by all the things below. They're only for a time. Grace. He's giving you the opposite of what you deserve. Peace. He is guaranteed for you a harmonious, fulfilling, satisfying relationship with God and with uh, all of His creation, it's all of His creatures. Now, you don't have that in fullness now, but that's what is awaiting you in spite of the struggles that you have. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus dwells in you. God will make the indwelling Spirit accomplish in you what He accomplished in Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of His power that He has even, uh, that he has, even to subject all things to Himself. You are sitting under that apostolic proclamation that the Gospel has happened and it is happening for you. Grace and peace to you. Rejoice in what Christ has accomplished for you. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great love. It's not only that uh, you had love through the Apostle for the Roman Church, but you have love for us. We recognize that we are the Gentiles of whom you speak. Through the apostolic proclamation of the Apostle Paul, you have reached us by your grace. Nothing in our hands we bring, but simply to the cross of Christ we cling, Father. And we thank you that through true faith we are grafted into Christ and all his blessings. Help us to endure with perseverance our trials and struggles. And help us to look forward and be comforted by the Spirit's work to finally and fully recreate us in the last day. We ask these things for Christ's sake. Amen.